Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they cried out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's no one like the Lord. He is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous in all of his ways. He is set apart from sin and he is set apart to his own glory. And this is a God who is not only committed to his own glory, but he is committed to you, his church. It's amazing to think about how faithful God is to preserve and protect his church throughout the ages. That for 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ, though she has sought to have been stamped out and extinguished by emperors and kings, she is alive and well. That indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ not only keeps us and sustains us, it empowers us to keep moving forward. It's amazing to me to think about how God is faithful to preserve and protect his people. About 2,000 years ago, the church was under attack, and she still is today, by those who seek to teach what is false. One of the dangers that the early church was facing was false teaching creeping into the church. So one of the things that our forefathers did was they put together a statement, a doctrine, a creed that would affirm those who believe the Gospels, those who trust in the Lord. And it has become known as the Apostles' Creed. I think Al Mohler said it really well when he said it like this. All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. So for us to start our message this morning, I want us to take some time in just a moment in which we are going to recite together out loud the Apostles' Creed. This is a declaration that the church for 2,000 years has been reciting together, has been memorizing together, that you and I are joining with saints of old who've gone before us, and even to this day, and long after you and I are dead and gone and have gone on to glory, we'll continue to hold fast to this declaration. So up on the screen is the Apostles' Creed. And I want us to say this together as a faith family. Those of you engaging with us online, I want to invite you to recite this at home or wherever you are out loud with us as a faith family. Let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
This great creed has been the church's way of protecting her from those who might seek to teach what is true and those who seek to what is not true, that we affirm and hold fast to what is true about the gospel. You see, the church has made the good confession throughout her life, and we will continue to do so as we are marching towards Zion, our heavenly home. But did you notice that phrase that we declared together? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Well, that is the truth that we are going to unpack together today as a faith family in Acts chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're in the infancy stages of our sermon series through the book of Acts together as a faith family. This is message number three. And uh, last week we were looking at the Acts 1-8 text that lays out really the the fabric of the rest of the book. It really revolves around Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We won't do a show of hands to see who memorized Acts chapter 1 verse 8 this week. But if you didn't, I'll give you another week to memorize it if you haven't already. But last week, we took some time to look at the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the He, not an it, the Holy Spirit is a He, and how He convicts us of sin. He points us to Jesus. He sanctifies us. He illumines the Scriptures for us. He empowers us to pray and to preach. He confirms our salvation. He lives inside of us. He gives us faith. He frees us from sin. He encourages us. He confirms and and conforms us, rather, into the image of Jesus. That the Spirit unifies the church. The Spirit gives believers gifts to build up the church. And as we saw in Acts 1-8, He, the Holy Spirit, gives the power of God upon believers to be witnesses. Well, the time is approaching for the disciples in Acts chapter 1 for them to be departed or be separated from Jesus. Jesus' departure has come. He's done everything necessary to secure our salvation. He's done it through his perfect sinless life that we couldn't live. His substitutionary death on the cross, he died in our place. His burial in a borrowed tomb, only needed it for three days. His victorious resurrection from the dead. And now, as we're going to see in the text, his glorious ascension into heaven. Look with me in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven." This morning, I want us to behold the power and the beauty and the significance of the ascension and what this means for us today. I want you to see the first thing here in the text. I want you to see the power of Christ's ascension. The power of Christ's ascension. Verse 9 says, after he had said this. Okay, well, what did he say? Well, Luke is referencing back to the great commission that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see, last words are significant words. Jesus is giving the significant statement, his declaration, the mission that he leaves for his church uh, to be witnesses for him all over the world. He's giving these final words before he ascends back up into heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father. And here he is, after he commissions his followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he was, verse 9, taken up as they were watching. You see, the ascension doesn't get a lot of attention. It's, It's often neglected by many believers, and yet it holds hands with the incarnation. The ascension of Jesus is a big deal, y'all. It's a big deal. It it, it goes together with his life and with his ministry. They go together. They hold hands. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly or milk and cereal, meat and potatoes. They go together. Jesus came to be with us, and then he returned back up to be with his father. We see this where Paul addresses it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, but what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. You see, we even see this in Philippians chapter 2, that humiliation and exaltation go together. That Jesus humbled himself by taking on a human body. That the eternal Son of God, who has always existed, leaves the glory of heaven and humbles himself and takes on human flesh, born in Bethlehem. And he humbled himself to become like a servant, Philippians 2. He humbled himself even to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross, a humiliating, horrible death. And yet his humiliation goes hand in hand with his exaltation. For Jesus was not only humbled, but he is the one who is risen, ruling, and reigning on high. He is exalted, and he is the one seated on his throne, high and exalted. And y'all, he's doing just fine. He's the king, seated on his throne. And he is the one who is in the heavens even now. He ascended. He literally bodily went up. He is levitating and going up into the sky. Well, where does he go? Well, Peter addresses this later in Acts chapter 2. He's one of the eyewitnesses right here watching with his head looking up like, I can't believe I'm looking at this. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, he has been exalted to the right hand of God. He has ascended up into heaven. Mark 16, 19 says he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Question, did Jesus sit down because he was tired? No. Did he sit down because he was exhausted and needed sweet tea? No. He sat down because his work was complete. Everything needed to be done to fulfill and to complete the salvation necessary for me and you was done. He completed it through his perfect sinless life, through his perfect death on the cross, through his perfect bodily resurrection on the third day. His work was done. He did everything necessary. Just as we see God rests on the seventh day of creation, not because he was tired from the first six days of work, he rests because his job was done. Here is Jesus seated on his throne because everything necessary was done. 
He, he, he had all the punch list. He checked everything off. Everything off. Every box needed to be checked. He took care of it. He is the one who was faithful. So question, what does Jesus do from his throne in heaven? Is he sitting up there playing Yahtzee, waiting for us? What does he do with his time? I put in your notes three things that Jesus does from his throne in heaven. The first is this. He rules the world from his throne. Jesus has ascended into heaven where he is installed as the high king of heaven, seated in majesty upon his royal throne. And it is from there that he rules, he reigns at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies are subdued under his feet. Isaiah 66.1 says, the, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. The king is seated on his throne. He is high and exalted. He's not anxious over the state of current affairs. Jesus is not wringing out his hands, afraid of what's going to happen next, as if it's out of his control. He's not worrying about the future of the world. All things are under his sovereign care and control. Maybe today you're wrestling saying, man, it looks like the world's going to fall apart. What's going to happen? My grandchildren, what kind of world are they going to grow up in? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't you worry about the future. He's got it. Jesus is in control over all things. You need not fear or worry about the future because he's the one who is sovereign over the future. You may be anxious today and uneasy about what's going to happen. Don't allow your heart to be troubled. Put your hope in God. Trust in Him. Point the eyes of your weary heart to the King who is seated on His throne. The one who is high and exalted over every king, president, every premier and monarch. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord over all lords. You need not worry or fear. Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. And do you know what the writer of Psalm 2 says? The Lord sits on his throne and laughs. You may be thinking, what's going to happen in the Middle East? those who seek to kill and persecute believers. The Lord ain't worried. He's got his people. And beloved, he's got you. He's got you in the palm of his hand and no one can snatch you from his omnipotent grip. He is the faithful and true God who is holding fast to his word and his promises and he's holding fast to you. You need not worry what ISIS may do. He sits on his throne and laughs. You don't need to worry about what's going to happen over in Asia. He sits on his throne and laughs. Those who seek to conspire against him, he's like, you have no idea who I am, do you? He's the king, I tell you. And he rules and he reigns from his throne. I want you to see, secondly, that he not only rules and reigns from his throne, but number two, he commissions the spirit from his throne. Before Jesus went to the cross, he taught his disciples about the role in the work of the Spirit. You see it in John chapters 14 through 16, that the night before Jesus was crucified, he met with his disciples in the upper room. And he began to teach them because he knew what was coming the next day. 
Jesus knew about the, the suffering he was about to endure and the, and the toil and the struggle. And the, I can imagine the emotional pain that these disciples had as the one that they've been following for three years, three and a half years. They're just like, what, what is going on? And so here he is in John 14 through 16. He's coaching them up saying, guys, here's what's going to happen. I want you to, don't worry. Put your hope in, in me. Trust in the Lord, right? And in John 14 through 16, he's coaching them up about the work of the Spirit. How the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to come upon them. And from Jesus' perspective, the presence of the Spirit in believers, grab hold of this, is better than Jesus being standing here right next to us. Let me tell you, point this to you. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Now, this sounds counterintuitive. Wouldn't you think? Man, it would be far better if I could have Jesus here with me, right here, is better than the spirit inside of me. But Jesus says it's the opposite. He says that if they understood what he's doing here, that they would be glad he was returning to heaven because it means they would be receiving the Holy Spirit. I love how J.D. Greer says it like this. He says, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. And here Jesus is upon his throne. And in John 16, 7, he tells us, if I go, I'm gonna send him to you. And as we are going to see in about three years, when we get to Acts chapter two, <laughs> we see the spirit of God come upon his people and the church is born and the spirit comes and lives inside of believers and he encourages you and he keeps you and he reminds you of the truth. He illumines the word. He challenges you to be faithful to Christ even as you walk through the hardship that you're going through right now. As you're struggling in your marriage, the spirit is right there with you, not leaving you for a second. That as you are working through the disobedience of a child, the spirit is right there saying, I've got you. I'm not leaving you. As you are trying to figure out what your next move is going to be at work, the Spirit is saying, I'm going to guide you and give you wisdom. If you will trust me, I'm going to shepherd you through all of this. You see, as Jesus is seated upon his throne, he commissions and sends the Spirit to be with us permanently forever. The third thing that Jesus does from his throne is he intercedes for us. Oh my goodness. I wish I could spend hours on this one with y'all. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So after Jesus's earthly ministry, did he take a break from being our shepherd? No. Did he stop being our advocate? No. Did Jesus cease to be our mediator? No. Did he take a break from being our high priest? No. 
Jesus continues to care for his people. He continually, day and night, listens to you pray. He is the one who is interceding on your behalf. And he promised that when we pray, that he will respond with all of heaven's authority. That he is the one seated on his throne and he loves to hear you pray and to seek his face. And by the way, he's praying for you right now. He's interceding on your behalf before the Father. You see, Christ never stops caring for you. Christ never stops caring for you. As you go through pain as a parent, he's right there with you and he's interceding for you. He's on his throne and he is caring for you as you go through your business, not going the way you want it. As you go through hardship, wondering, am I going to have to struggle with loneliness the rest of my life? He says, oh no, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. You see, he is the faithful brother who sticks with us no matter what we go through. He understands your loneliness. He is interceding for you right now. He sympathizes with your suffering. He cares about the struggle that you are going through. You see, Jesus is actively involved in every detail of your life. As you struggle, as you suffer, as you go through trials, he is not indifferent towards you. He does not shun you. Jesus does not turn his back upon you. He has not forgotten you. That even though you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? For I am with you. And I will comfort you. I will walk with you. And even in the moments when you don't recognize his presence, he's there. Even in those moments where he don't feel him, he's still there. He is the faithful friend who is with you. And he is with you in the struggle. And as he intercedes for you, he is your advocate. Okay, that's what you talk about. You see, you have someone who accuses you before the Father. Satan. He's such a... A, a conniving liar, because here's what Satan does. Satan will tempt you to sin. Once you cross the line, he then accuses you before the Father. Look what he did, right? This is how he acts. He's a tempter and the accuser. He's a liar and a murderer, and he hates you. But I've got some good news for you. You have the best defense attorney ever. Jesus is your advocate before the Father. And that though you and I have a laundry list of sins in which we are guilty before God, Jesus says you are not guilty based upon what he has done for you at the cross. Through your faith in Jesus, when you turn from your sin and trust it in Christ by faith, you are washed. Though your sins were red like crimson, you are now white as snow. You are pure and holy in the sight of God, not because you're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. We behold what he has done for us through his death and resurrection. We rally around this gospel. And when you believed, you opened your heart and said, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for me. 
I believe you were buried for me. I believe you rose again on the third day for me. So now my sins are gone. I'm washed. I'm made clean by the blood of the lamb. You have an advocate who goes before the father and says, he is not guilty. She is not guilty based upon the work I have done for them. And through your faith in Jesus, he is seated on the throne and he is your advocate. Now it's important for us to understand this, that he is our only mediator. He's the only one who goes before the Father on our behalf. Mary does not do that. Saints throughout the ages don't do that. I do not do that. Jesus is your advocate and your one mediator before God. There's no angel who steps in there. Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men the man, Christ Jesus. And you see, Jesus's atoning work at the cross was complete. And yet Jesus's high priestly work continues. He continues to intercede for you even right now. I hope you know today how loved you are and how cared for you are, that you have a savior who knows your name, He's covered your sin, promises to be with you, has adopted you into his family, has promised to go and prepare a place for you so that where he is, you may be also. And you have a savior who's high and exalted on his throne and he's ruling and reigning and doing just fine. You fix your eyes upon him today. As you go through hardship and difficulty, you fix the eyes of your heart upon Christ. For he is the one who ascended and is seated on his throne. The second thing I want you to see here in the text from Acts chapter 1 is the proof of Christ's ascension. Verse 10, while Jesus was going, he ascended up into heaven. The 11 apostles, okay, because by this point, Judas Iscariot has died. They're, they're gazing into heaven. Their necks tilted back. Eyes, probably like saucers. Mouths open agape as to what they're looking at as Jesus is going up into the sky. Then suddenly, verse 10, suddenly. Why do angels scare people? They're creeping up on people all throughout Scripture. They're scary enough. Suddenly, verse 10, two men in white clothes stood by them. Okay, so who are these these two, these two witnesses are, are angels. They're there with the 11. And they're, they're declaring to them what's, what's happening. They're interpreting and ex explaining it. Now, what's the big deal about having two witnesses? Well, it's for the sake of proof that this actually happened. For example, when testifying in court, Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 19, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul reiterates this again in 2 Corinthians 13.1. When church discipline is to take place, Jesus instructed that after confronting an unrepentant brother or sister, that he says in Matthew 18.16, if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact 
may be established. Well, here are two angels confirming the reality of what the 11 are already seeing. Jesus has returned to heaven. Y'all, this really happened. This is not a metaphorical ascension. This is not a spiritual ascension. Jesus bodily went up into the sky and sat down upon his throne. This legit happened. And here we have these two angels as proof that this thing actually occurred. He is truly the Messiah. If he is not ascended into heaven, y'all, then he ain't the Messiah. That means that he really didn't fulfill everything necessary to accomplish our salvation. If he has not ascended, you and I are in big trouble. But the reality is he has ascended. He is the crucified, buried, risen, ascended, ruling and reigning savior of the world. He's the king. This actually happens. Third thing I want you to see in the text is the promise at Christ's ascension. These two angels are pointing forward to the promise of Christ's return. They tell these men of Galilee, these disciples from the northern part of Israel, he says, this same Jesus will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. You see, Jesus here, as he is leaving earth, as his feet are leaving, where where are they located? They're on the Mount of Olives. It's a mountain just across from the temple. It's, it's, I mean, how do I, can I, I'm trying to think of how I can describe this. It's like a par five from the top of the mountain to the other side. It's not far. Like you can see Jerusalem right there. It's kind of like, um, for those of you who don't play golf, it's kind of like um, the Vulcan looking down upon Birmingham City. It's right there. He's on the Mount of Olives. This is where he's located. And he is now ascending up into heaven. And so there is this understanding from the text that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. Well, Kenneth, that's a great speculation. That's not my words. That's Zechariah. Zechariah tells us in, in chapter 14, verse 4, that the Messiah will touch down on the Mount of Olives. But did you notice the vehicle that took Jesus away here in the text? A cloud. A cloud. Clouds in Scripture represent the presence of God. We see a cloud that comes down at Mount Sinai when Moses met with God. We see a cloud that leads the Israelites by day in their journey from Egypt. We see a cloud that covers the tent when the glory of God falls upon the tabernacle. We see a cloud that falls upon the temple at Solomon's dedication. We see a cloud that meets with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see a cloud that ushered Jesus back up into heaven on the Mount of Olives. And one day Jesus will return in his glorified body riding on a cloud. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I hope you're not scared of heights. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
Just as Jesus is going up in a cloud into the very presence of God, he is now one day going to return back riding on a cloud. There's coming a day in which all of the redeemed throughout the ages will be rescued from this planet. We're going to return home to heaven to be with Christ and all who have believed the gospel. The question is this, are you ready? Jesus is coming back soon. Are you ready? Well, Kenneth, how can I get ready? Well, today, turn from your sin and trust in Christ by faith. Say goodbye to your old life and say, I'm not going that way anymore. The Bible calls it repentance. It's a U-turn in which you, by your mind, say, I'm not going this way anymore. I'm going the way of Christ. You turn from your sin, and by faith, you trust in Jesus that he died on the cross in your place, that he died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that this Jesus is the one who has come to save you from your sin. And when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ by faith, you are ready for that day. And as the day approaches, y'all, and we're one day closer than we were yesterday, as we are day by day approaching and anticipating, we are longing for the return of Christ. And as the world around us gets more chaotic and it's designed in many ways to make us loosen our grip on the things of this world, hardship and trial and suffering are to remind us that we're not home yet. And we have a Savior who's coming to rescue us. There's coming a day in which there's going to be a shout and a trumpet and the eastern skies are going to split and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to call us home. And we're going to be there with all of the redeemed. I'm not sure about you, but I can't wait. We're going to be with the Lord. He's going to come back and rescue us. The question is, are you ready? For those of you who are in Christ, you've made your heart ready. You've, tr- you've believed the gospel. You've said yes to Jesus. What are you challenging us to do, Kenneth? What's your impact point? And it's this. Is I want you today to direct the eyes of your heart to look towards Christ's imminent return. Turn the eyes of your heart to look to the reality that Jesus is coming back for us. You see, our hope is in a glorious future in which this king who ascended into heaven is coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And justice is going to end. Suffering will be no more. Death will be destroyed. Truth and righteousness, peace and joy will abide forever. You see, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he will come again. This ascended king who went up into heaven, he's coming back for you. He's not forgotten you. He's a savior who cares so deeply for you and has promised he's gonna bring you with himself back to our home. So I wanna challenge you today as you go through hardship and struggle, Look unto Jesus. He is the one who's going to return in the same way that he ascended. And he's going to rescue you 
and bring you to himself.